Hi, this is Ben from 561 Music Podcast. Right now, we're trying to get a thousand subscribers on YouTube. It just helps us get out there more. It also enables us to monetize the podcast, to make it better, do more advertising for it and things like that. Subscribe to the podcast and hit the notifications button. That'd be doing us a really big favor. Thank you very much. Welcome, welcome to 561 Music. My name's Ben. And I'm Hector. How you doing, man? I feel like crap, but I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming in. We, uh, we missed you the last couple of weeks, so it's nice to yeah, see your pretty yeah. face. Yeah, I had, uh, last week I was sick, and I'm still sick now, but uh, hopefully on the mend. And uh, and the week before that, I was at a at a Avatar movie premiere. That was pretty fun. Yeah, it looked amazing. I went to yeah. see it. It's pretty pretty cool, man. Pretty good movie, man. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, that was fun. That I was feel fun. like maybe I'm getting older or something like that. I mean, I am obviously. Everyone does, but um, it didn't hit like the other one did, you know. But I think it's just because maybe I at the time I lived in Manchester and <coughs> it was really cold and horrible outside, and and it was kind of. I went into this little cocoon of wonderful of 3Dness, tro- you know? tropical 3Dness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe it's partly just Florida's kind of, you know, yeah. so pretty out anyway. I don't know. I thought, I mean, there's not a whole lot they can do with the storyline, so there, you know, there's no originality there. But I thought overall, I mean, yeah. uh, visually, it was a stunning movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did you see it on an IMAX one? I saw it on IMAX 3D. Um, and uh, and we had the rumble seats, so every time like every time like a ship or something would fly by, the seat would rumble and everything. Oh, that's fun! Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah. Wicked. So, um, yeah, we have just had the uh, the holidays and Christmas and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. That was pretty fun. I uh, I got a whole slew of musical instrument related things. Nice. Yeah, a lot nice. of which I bought myself. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> Including a, a full drum kit so that I can play with Butch and the Fat Dubes. Sweet, man. Yeah, it's going to be fun, man. Yeah, I, um, got a, I got a new set of strings for the, uh, for the upright. Okay. So uh, those uh, um, uh, Eva, Eva Parisi's. Yeah. yeah, and I know what they are because yeah. uh, we talked about it. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. And they're the white ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, totally. I yeah. hope they uh, I hope they work out for us. Yeah, for you. yeah. Waiting waiting for them to get here though. It'd be interesting yeah. to see what happens with the bow. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious how that's going to react with it because yeah. not all strings are bow friendly. Yeah, I mean, I bet it'll work a bit, and that's yeah. really all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all yeah. we need. Uh, um, we're very privileged to have uh, Jay Wolf with us today. How's it going, Jay? Going good. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming in. Um, you are a a veritable goldmine of information about the the early beginnings of rock and roll and R&B and funk and we just thought it'd be fun to have you come and chat to us about it. Yeah, I'm ready. Cool. So, uh why don't we get started with um what was your early life like in terms of um we how did you find yourself getting into music and um what were were your parents supportive? What was the what was your original um like what was your starting point with all of this? Well, I was the youngest of six children, and uh, two of my older brothers uh, were into music. One just sort of listening and enjoying it. But he was um, very influential because he listened to 
the good stuff. Right. And then I had a, <clears throat> another brother under him who was a drummer in a very popular rock and roll band in the 50s in New Orleans called oh, the cool. Belmonts. And those guys were like rock and roll gods, you know. Yeah. They, they wore a different color tuxedo every set, you know. Wow. I mean, they were really great. And uh, so I kind of idolized him. And then uh, when I was in middle school, I wanted to be in the band, and my mom wanted me to play the trumpet. But because my older brother was a drummer, I wanted to be a snare drummer, so I ended up doing that. Gotcha. And and a couple of guys came up to me in middle school and said, hey, man, we started a rock and roll band, and we need a drummer. I said, I'm the guy, you know. So <laughs> yeah. uh, all, of us, all I had was a snare drum. That's awesome. And my older brother said, don't you touch my stuff, I'll kill you. <laughs> you know, so I had to scramble around, mow lawns and everything. And I bought a $40 drum set, a Slingerland set. Right. And uh, at the same time, I bought a $10 guitar, a Stella. Yeah. Which was a torture uh, machine. Oh, wow. <laughs> Your fingers would bleed every time you played it. I yeah, mean, it yeah. was the most hideous, horrible guitar on the planet. <laughs> but I loved it because... I found out my oldest brother had a Jimmy Reed album. And Jimmy Reed, man, to this day, those songs are in my head. Yeah. But every song had the same underlying do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Sure. And Jimmy Reed would sing over that. Yeah. And a like lot of people would say, you know, when I hear Jimmy Reed's voice, I can hear like a female voice, too. Well, Jimmy Reed couldn't read. Okay. His name was Jimmy Reed, but he couldn't I know, read. Yeah. So his wife would sit behind him and read the lyrics that he wrote. Oh, my word. You see? And so that's when you hear Jimmy Reed, you hear a female voice in the background. Is she singing along with him or is she just whispering? Singing along with him. Oh, wow. And she was on key, that's too. Wild. But I learned with that $10 guitar, and it was very painful, that if you played that two-string one-five Jimmy Reed lick, yeah, faster. It was Chuck Berry, yeah. So now I'm in a band, you know. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a rock and roll guy. If you could play Chuck Berry, and I could, yeah, you were on your way, man. It's like you know Johnny B. Good, you know you're sure. on your way. So uh, I'm playing drums in this little rock and roll band with my forty dollar drum set. I actually painted it with my mother's vacuum cleaner, which turned blue with the blue paint and all, and. Uh, it's called the Roulettes, and this was in the 50s. Right. And in New Orleans, you know, back then, this was way before DJs and all that stuff. You could play all you wanted. Right. Yeah. We started out making $5 a man. Yeah. And we were thrilled with that. I mean, I had a $40 drum set, so it didn't take a lot of $5 gigs to, you know. No, that's it. And how much is $5 in that <laughs> money worth now? Probably what, like 50 or something? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, we're rocking along. And then um, when I got to high school, I got into a better band. And um, I was 15 years old, just about to turn 16. I would take a streetcar down to uh, and just visit all the music shops Yeah. on weekends, you know. And... Uh, I spent so much time at Tippett's Music on Carrollton in New Orleans that Jim Tippett walked up to me one day and handed me a time card. So now <laughs> he said, you're gonna, if you're going to live here, you might as well get paid. Sure, yeah. Because I would clean all the guitars. And, and, and there was an old guy on the other side of Tippett's. They, they had a, uh, 
a speaker reconing business, Allied right. Loudspeaker. And there was an old guy in there that repaired guitars. And this yeah. guy was great. But, you know, he didn't have any formal training or anything. Nobody did back then. Yeah. But he taught me how to do setups and fret work and all that. So here oh. I am. I'm like the, the great setup guy in New Orleans. All these great guitar players bringing me their guitars. So you've you know, been doing it. that for a really long time. I didn't realize that you've been at that for oh, so long. Oh, since I was 15 years old, yeah. Right. So there was a guy that taught um, guitar there who I kind of idolized, Earl Stanley. And we're still friends today. And Earl was the bass player in Mac Rebenack's band. Now, Mac Rebenack who later became Dr. John, but this was long before that. Uh, Mac Rabinac and the Skyliners was generally thought to be the greatest band in the South. And they were amazing, especially with great singers. Now, Mac didn't sing. Right, yeah. He probably never should have, but he (laughs) didn't sing. You know, Dr. John voice, I guess he carried it off pretty well. He won Grammys, what can I say? Yeah, exactly. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So anyway... um, Earl Stanley, teaching lessons at Tippett's, says, hey, man, we're playing out by your house uh, this weekend. Why don't you come by and check out the band? So my buddy and I go to this place called Little Peach Bar. Now, it was, you know, Mac Ravening Skyliners, Grace Band of the South, at a bar. No, this place would hold a 1,000 people easy. Yeah. And it was on the levee in Bucktown. And cars were parked everywhere, and there's like 1,500 people there. And we couldn't get in, my buddy and I, because we were only 15. Yeah. But uh, Earl would sneak us in the back door by the bandstand. (coughs) There was a door right by the bandstand. So we're sitting there with our eyes wide open watching these guys and listening to them and going, oh, my God, these guys are the greatest, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, unfortunately, half of them were heroin addicts. Right. And the drummer was not their regular drummer. Their regular drummer had just died the week before of oh, a heroin heavens. overdose. Oh, no. wow. And so uh, they had this guy who fill in, and he really wasn't very good. I'm sitting there in my mind saying, sheesh, I can play better than this guy. <laughs> so the guy passes out on the first break right. in his car, and they couldn't wake him up. Yeah, geez. So Earl pointed at me and said, hey. So now I'm sitting on the drums with, Mac Rabinac and the Skyliners wow. shaking like a leaf. Man. Yeah, yeah. But once the music started, you know how it is. I was yeah, fine. Yeah. I knew the songs. Yeah. <laughs> I knew the stuff. I knew all their tunes. Yeah. And uh, so I'm rocking along with them. And every every once, you know, Mac was like Mr. Cool. He uh, and and I have to explain at this point. People know Doctor John is a piano player. Yeah. <laughs> Mac Rabinac was a guitar player. Right. And until he got shot in this uh, That's right, I read right about that, yeah. I could tell you this story. I was there, but I took him to the hospital. But uh, anyway, yeah, we'll he switched to, to piano, and he became a great piano player. He was not a great <laughs> guitar player. Right. He was a good guitar player, but, but Earl was a better guitar player. Earl Stanley, the bass player. So at the end of the gig, I'm packing up this guy's drums, and the guy's still knocked out in his car. And uh, Earl says, look, we're playing tomorrow night over here, and then we're over there, and then, and uh, can you make it? And I said, what do you mean, can I make it? He said, well, you're in the band. I said, oh, wow. I'm 15 years old, man. I'll be 16 in two weeks, you know. Yeah. And so uh, how, do my, how do I tell my parents, I'm a junior in high school, how do I tell them that I'm uh, 
in a heroin addict's band. You know? Yeah, yeah. You How know? did you and we're going to be traveling all over, and I'm going to be playing every Dropping out night. of school and hitting the road. And there goes my <laughs> high school, you know. Yeah. So um, it was working out good. Great band, great singers, great horn players. You know, back then, everybody had horns. Sure. And, and we had fabulous horn players and fabulous musicians. But Mac, being a heroin addict, was unreliable. Right. And your money didn't always show up. Yeah, sure, yeah. And it was all about the money, you know, because I wanted a new car and I wanted, uh, you know, better drums. And, you know, so things uh, were kind of shaky, but. I idolized these guys, but the money was tough. So at some point, Earl Stanley, well, actually, Mac went to jail, and then Earl took the band over and reconfigured it, and Earl was a better businessman, and the money was good. But I have to say, you know, all throughout my junior and senior year of high school, I played six nights a week, sometimes weddings on oh, weekends. Wow. Uh, we were traveling a lot. How much did you, did, did you get out of the South, or was it like kind of the Southern? No. Yeah, it was, yeah, we would go from like Jacksonville to Houston. Okay. And, but mostly around New Orleans and uh, Baton Rouge, places like that. You yeah. Know, we, I remember one time I would tell my friends, man, I'm in the greatest band of the South. And they'd say, yeah, but what about the Boogie Kings? Because in Louisiana, there was a band called the Boogie Kings. And you can look them up on YouTube. They were fabulous, but they were they had Delbert McClinton as a drummer and singer yeah, you know, for a while, and Gigi Shin, who was world famous at the time, and uh, so we're we're playing a prom on the Gulf Coast for Ole Miss, and one of the horn players says, "Man, the Boogie Kings are playing another prom just across the hall there." <laughs> I said, "Oh man!" So uh, Ronnie Barron, our singer, played covered for me, and I went over. There. I'd never heard the Boogie Kings. And I heard them, and, they, man, they had eight horns. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's a horn And section. Delbert wow, McClinton playing the drums and singing, and Gigi Shen singing. And I thought, wow. But all they did was covers. Yeah. So it all sounded very eighth-note repetitive, you know? Gotcha. And I would, you know, when I listened to our band, we were experimenting. Yeah. And that's how I got into funk. And uh, there was no funk. Right, yeah. Hadn't been invented yet. And, and so... When I got in the band and Mac would talk to me, which took a couple of weeks, he didn't sure. talk much. He said, "You got to get into funk." And I thought, I thought he was cussing at me. I don't know what the heck he was talking about. Right. So I, he said, "What do you?" I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Listen to Huey." Right. Huey Piano Smith, uh, great piano player. I don't think a lot of people know how great he was, but. He did a song called Rockin' Pneumonia, Boogie Woogie Flu, Rockin' Pneumonia. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. And so Mac played that over and over for me. He's, now, the drummer's playing straight four. Every drummer played straight four. Sure, there was yeah. no funk. It had, no one had ever done it. That yeah. We knew it, probably in Africa somewhere, maybe. But we didn't know about that. Yeah. So uh, Mac said, don't listen to the drummer. Listen to Huey's piano. Right, yeah. And I would encourage anyone listening to this to listen to that on YouTube and listen to Huey's piano. Very funky, but there was no funk. All the great drummers, Buddy Rich, all those cats, all the greatest drummers in the world played straight four. Ringo yeah. played straight four. Yeah. Ringo never heard of funk, and it had not been invented. So my brother, my older brother, who I idolized, 
straight four. He actually yeah. fussed at me about that. And so... Oh, because he was saying that you you shouldn't mess with that kind of thing? Oh, he said people can't dance to it. You're screwing up the beat, man. Yeah. So uh, Max had listened to Huey. So I went home, sat at my drums for hours going... Trying to coordinate that. Yeah. And then I wanted to make so it thicker. So when you say so straight four, you're talking about the kick drum, basically, yeah, right? Yeah, four. yeah. Like four on the floor. Uh, okay, if you listen to rock and roll, yeah, early rock and roll, Bill Haley and the Comets and Little Richard and all that, the drummer is playing straight four. Yeah. yeah. Driving yeah, the beat hard, but yeah. there's no funk. Yeah. Hadn't been invented yet. All the Fats Domino stuff. All the Elvis stuff. Yeah. Straight four. Yeah. When you think about that, you realize there was no funk. Yeah. So Mac Rabinac, heroin addict, says, look, you got to play funk. So I'm inventing it because there was no one could teach it to yeah. me. So I'm in my bedroom at home, driving my mother crazy. And it was I felt so uncoordinated at first, you know, but then I just kept doing it. Then I said, I'm going to double the hi-hat to see if I can get more rhythm going, you know? And I did that. Nobody had ever done that before because you were taught to rock the hi-hat, rock your foot. Yeah. To keep time. It's like a metronome. Sure. And I had learned that. But now I'm doubling it up. So I'm throwing all the rules out the window, man. Yeah. So you could say I invented funk. You could say (laughs) I didn't. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. not going to make me It's quite a claim. It's awesome. I know. Yeah, it's 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 an unbelievable claim. It's fantastic. You know, what a privilege to have you on and talk to you about it. You know, even as just someone who was there and and was part of the movement that, you know, funk came out of. It's just incredible. Well, Mac Rebenak, who was a very funky guy, I mean, he hung out with Huey Smith. He knew those cats. And I started in introducing it into uh, some of the tunes we were doing especially when we started doing Ray Charles stuff you know you could slide that in and the horn players would turn around and look at me and Mac was just smiling and Mac never smiled oh wow but I developed it and I developed it and then a guy came up to me at one of our gigs and he said I've been watching you you're a skinny little punk you know and he said and I, I've been working on that. I've been watching you and working on it. And he's like the godfather of funk today because I switched to guitar, but he stayed with drums. And that's right. the great Johnny Vodakovich. Yeah. When I listen to Johnny play, man, tears down my face. He's so brilliant. Yeah. But he stuck with the drums, and he just really worked it, you know. But the funk, we, we recorded something. Our best singer was Ronnie Barron, who was a Cajun guy. His name was really Ronnie Barras. Right. But Ronnie was a brilliant singer and a brilliant entertainer, and he fronted the band. <coughs> and um, Ronnie and Mac were trying to get a hit record, and so they they formed a little duo called Dritz and Dravy. Right. Dritz and Dravy. <laughs> and, and Ronnie, uh, Mac Rabinac and Ronnie Barron, you, you can find it on YouTube. And we did a song called Talk That Talk. Right. which is on YouTube. It's the first song anyone has ever recorded funk. Wow. That I can find, or that yeah. anyone else can find. 
You know, whenever Mac would introduce me, years later, like even a few years ago, he'd say, this is the guy that invented funk. I'd say, no, it was your idea. I just worked it up, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, awesome. And we would just kind of kid each other like Yeah, that, well, you know? I think it was the tune that um, I was just listening to, the, the Storm Warning. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. No what funk in that, though. That was before pre-funk. Okay, gotcha. But that's gotcha. still my favorite recording on drums is... Um, yeah, so which, sorry, but, yeah, I, I got a, which one is the first funk record, you think? It's called Talk That Talk, Talk That Talk, and the lyrics are brilliant. And it's Mac Rabinak and Ronnie Barron singing together. Yeah. Dritz and Dravy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But that was the first funk tune. But getting back to where does rock and roll come from? Well, a lot of people have different opinions, but I'm yeah. going to tell you what I know. Yeah, sure, we'd love to hear um, World War II, a lot of guys came home and had the GI Bill, and they went to music school in New Orleans. It was Grunewalds, and there was a couple of others. And some of these guys, <clears throat> these guys from the black neighborhoods, couldn't afford college. But with the GI Bill, they could go to music school. Yeah. All right, now you have to understand, this was a time of strict segregation, Sure. Uh, Not only yeah. in the South, but the whole entire country and most sure. of the world. Um, and so they would go to music school, and a handful of them came out of music school in the 40s, 44, 45, 46. Uh, brilliant musicians. Sure. Um, and I'm going to drop some names on you here. But um, there was a studio there in town called J&M Studio. Very small. Smaller than this. And that's where it all started. There was a guy named Cosmo Matassa. Right. And we always recorded at Cosmos in New Orleans. You know, he expanded the studio, new location and all that. But um, he hooked up with a guy named Dave Bartholomew. Now, I'm going to tell you an amazing statistic. Dave produced over 4,000 hits. Oh, my word. Dave Bartholomew. Wow. Holy crap. Little Richard, yeah. Ray Charles, Fats Domino, <clears throat> and some other guys I'm going to mention. But when you hear all those guys and hundreds other, you hear Dave Bartholomew's band because he was the house band at J&M right, Studios, yeah. and he was like the arranger, you know? Yeah. So and he had two of the greatest saxophone players that invented rock and roll saxophone, Red Tyler and Lee Allen. Right. Okay, I mentioned these names because they're important. Yeah. Uh, those guys came out of Grunewald School of Music on the GI Bill. Right. Now, and so did Dave. Now, so you've got all the players in place. You've got Cosmo Matassa with the studio, and you have Dave Bartholomew, who's at nighttime they played at the Dewdrop Inn, which is, man, that's where Ray Charles got his start, Little Richard. I mean, I just could go on and on. Uh, man, I, got, had, I was privileged. Mac dragged me in there one time to hear uh, Earl Palmer on the drums. I mean, can you imagine that? That's the first rock and roll drummer, Earl Palmer. Yeah, incredible. He was one of the wrecking crew out in California. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, the rock and roll, the term rock and roll came from Big Joe Turner. Okay. This is on YouTube. Big Joe Turner's, it'll blow your socks off. But this was in the 40s, not the 50s. This was in the 40s. There were three guys, Big Joe Turner... Roy Brown, very high voice, beautiful voice. In fact, Elvis's first hit was a cover 
of Roy Brown's That's All Right Mama. Right. Which was recorded 10 years earlier. Okay, Sid. Smiley Lewis, who was my favorite, Big Joe Turner, and Roy Brown. Those are the first three rock and roll singers. Right. Now, how come nobody knows of them? Because segregation. Right, it was exactly. called race radio. They <laughs> were on black radio. stations. Right. On the white stations that my parents listened to, you heard Bing Crosby, you heard Rosemary Clooney. Yeah. Lawrence Welk. And I loved all that. I still loved all that. That's yeah. Great music. But at night, my brothers and I would turn on. All we had was AM radio. Yeah. We'd turn on the black stations. Race radio, they called it. And, man, we heard, you know, John Lee Hooker. We heard Roy Brown. We heard all those cats, man. Wow, Big yeah. Joe Turner. Guitar <laughs> Slim. I mean, they were all on there. And that's. That's in my head even today. I listen to it so much, you know. But I encourage people to go to YouTube and get into Big Joe Turner, Roy Brown, and especially Smiley Lewis. Don't forget Smiley Lewis. He was a great guitar player, an amazing songwriter, and a great singer. But that's where rock and roll came from. But so many, um, as the 50s came in, so many white kids were calling their AM DJs and requesting songs that were being played on the black stations. Yeah. Race radio. So that's when they started playing Fats Domino. He was the first. Right. Because he didn't sound quite so black. Right. right. Yeah. That's what they said. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. Fats Domino didn't sound, you know, it's like, uh, how come, um, oh, gee, what's his name, the great piano player? It'll come to me. Oh, Nat King Cole. Okay. That's how he got played on legitimate, what they call legitimate radio, because <laughs> he didn't sound black. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm not hating on anybody. This is the way it was. Sure. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. The way it was. I'm not whitewashing it. But <clears throat> those rock and roll songs, and that wasn't blues. Uh, they thought they were playing rhythm and blues, but Big Joe Turner called it rock and roll. Right. I mean, he did a song called Shake, Rattle, and Roll. Come on. Yeah. So, um, and it's on YouTube. So they invented rock and roll, but then when Elvis came along in the 50s and all those cats that were in that periphery, yeah, they covered those songs from 10 years sure. earlier. Yeah, they yeah. popularized it at and that And now yeah. you could hear it on the white radio stations. <laughs> yeah. And the black guys never got a dime. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. They it's like got the, like blue the and British invasion doing the same thing with blues, and you know, just kind of stealing the music and making. <laughs> well, I have a, an affinity for the British invasion because I think a lot of the British musicians did what I did. They listened to those same artists. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. And they, I mean, you take Clapton. I mean, he look who he listened to and who he learned from. You know. Uh, Hubert Sumlin and all that. I mean, and he gives them credit, you know. Yeah. He doesn't deny it. And Jeff Beck's the same, you know. And they, they, um, Jimmy Page. Yeah. So, I mean, they just came along later. Yeah. You know. Yeah, we just recorded up in uh, in Memphis at Sun Studios, our last album, and um, this last summer. <clears throat> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, while we were there. It was pretty lo-fi, but it, but it was just all about the vibe. You yeah, know, so. but while we were there, there was a lot of, like, it was a lot of history being tossed around and and that was that was part of it is is that um you know with with Elvis and stuff there was a lot of songs that that Elvis would 
record and then go and perform and everybody you know was like oh my god you know he's he's you know he's invented something new that's and these all were, right mama with yeah, roy brown yeah and these were all songs yeah. that were 10 years old that were that were by black artists you know that's 10 right. years prior that just never saw the light of day before that you know yeah they were you know they would travel around the chitlin circuit you know and and um they were well known with black audiences <clears throat> sure. but a lot of and a lot of college students knew who they were yeah. right like my older brother but uh, we weren't allowed to go hear them. Yeah. You know, a fight would break out. You'd yeah, get yeah, killed, yeah. man. Oh, you couldn't go to one of their concerts. You know, you weren't allowed to. Yeah. yeah. I had all their records. And I used to go to a place in New Orleans. I'd take a streetcar down there when I was a kid, and I could buy B.B. King's LPs from the 50s, <clears throat> his early stuff, which is his best stuff. Yeah. For ninety nine cents, I still have some of them, oh, and great. they still have the ninety nine cent sticker on them. Nice. They'd punch a hole in the corner because you know it wasn't selling. Yeah. So they'd mark it down to ninety nine cents. Man, I'd I'd gobble them all up. I'd walk out with six or eight LPs every. Do you time still I'd listen to vinyl couldn't. these days? Oh yeah. Yeah, but I've I've recently got back into it. I'd, I've I've been enjoying it. We actually we're releasing this thing that we put on Sun on vinyl just you know to kind of honor it you know yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 i listen to vinyl too i like it it's fun i actually saw bb king play in uh um in memphis at bb king's at, at the restaurant or whatever it was uh it was years ago i was on a business trip and I, I brought my oldest with me and um we had some downtime and we were doing some you know different things little touristy things and i said uh you know, let's let's go get a pulled pork sandwich. You know, on, on Beale Street, and I thought, you know, we're better than BB King's, and we were there eating, and there was some guy playing some blues or whatever, and then all of a sudden, like BB King was on the stage. He just was wow. in the area and stopped in, and yeah. I was, yeah, that was probably one of the best experiences just to watch that, like like that. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> well, the, when I the short time I was with Mac Rebinex band, um, his band was hired to do. Uh, listener appreciation shows for the top DJs in New Orleans. And these shows were, were held at two locations. One was outdoors at Pontchartrain Beach on a big stage, and the other one was indoors at uh, the Municipal Auditorium. And the DJs would call in favors, and they'd bring in whoever had something on the charts, like they'd get Chuck Berry, mm-hmm. and, and we'd back them up. You know, and, and they do two, three songs, and and they get uh, Frankie Avalon, and so you know, I get to back up a lot of these people. <clears throat> so the second time we're doing this, <clears throat> Max's mother gave me the schedule because we had to learn all the songs. Sure, not no big deal for me. It's drums, you know. Yeah, and it was simple rock and roll, straight like Neil Sedaka, <laughs> you know, uh, Annette Full of Jello, we called her, and right. so. Uh, uh, the second time was at Municipal Auditorium. And the whole second half of the program had two words, Ray Charles. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. God. I'm playing drums for freaking Ray Charles. Oh I was like, I, could, I was shaking, man. I was so excited. So I'm studying all his music and just learning everything, man, just every little nuance. Because yeah. I know how fussy he is, you know. Yeah, I yeah. heard rumors. So we get to the auditorium for the sound check. And Earl's sitting there changing a string on his bass. And I said, man, I can't believe this. This is the greatest day of my life. Oh, he no. said, I'm coming. I told him. He said, 
you idiot. Who do you think came, arrived in those two buses out there? He has his own orchestra. <laughs> oh, man, my heart just dropped. I bet. Yeah. Oh, man, I told all my friends, I'm playing drums for Ray Charles. Man. <laughs> you know, but what a show that was. I mean, even though we were backstage, you know, you don't get a good sound mix backstage. But Yeah. But just a, the experience of being back there is a band, incredible. What a band. Oh, so powerful. Yeah, yeah. So powerful. That's amazing. Absolutely. Um, so what prompted the move to guitar? Well, I always, uh, I think most drummers want to play a little harmony and melody every now and then. Yeah. But the biggest thing was, with these bands with a horn section in front of you, and you're wearing a suit, and you're all hot and sweaty, and you're the last one out of there because you got to pack all the stuff up. Although most of our gigs, a lot of them were five, six nights at one venue, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but you're sitting there and you're looking for girls, you know, and and, <laughs> and you can't. All you can see is asses in front of you. Yeah, but yeah. they're not girls' asses. You yeah. Know? They're, they're you know horn players. So and guitar players. And I noticed a guitar player and the bass player. They're up front, and when they smile, their teeth twinkle. You know. Yeah. And they're hitting licks, and the girls are swooning over. Them. And I'm back there, sweat pouring off me. My hands filthy dirty from setting up and, yeah. you know, and playing the drums, you get dirty, you know. It's sure. just a dirty job, you know. So I'm back there all sweaty and working like a fiend, you know, and I'm yeah. getting no appreciation. So I said, I'm going to – and I, all I ever practiced at home was guitar. Yeah. So at, at, in 1967, I, I played – early that year drums for a great jazz organist and it was the greatest drum gig in my life wow, Aggie man. Gallagher from Hungary and she was cool. man she was Jimmy Smith on steroids and her husband played guitar and we had a jazz trio and we and they had a great gig five nights a week excellent pay benefits the whole thing and we were there for eight months and then uh, she got pregnant with a second child and she said I can't play anymore I'm just going to teach piano and organ. Right. And so that was the end of that. So I sold all my drums. Right. All of them. And I, um, I said, I'm going to play guitar. And a friend of mine played bass. And a great singer, Ralph Rishu. Again, we're still in touch today. And oh, that's lovely. I said, let's do a trio. No one's doing a power trio in New Orleans. Everything's horn bands. Yeah. Which I said are 10 years out of date. Nobody wants, wants them anymore. Yeah. People want to hear Cream and, and, and John Mayall tunes, you know? Yeah. And I said, uh, we got to do that stuff. So I said, let's form a trio, uh, get ourselves a good drummer. And I said, we'll do some of that stuff, but we'll also do some of our old New Orleans tunes, but we'll modernize them. We'll yeah. Make them like 60s rock. Make them know? like lean and, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. get, <laughs> make, bring them to life, you know, because yeah. we don't, we don't, we're not going to play a horn section, you know? So, what kind of guitar are you playing back then? Well, I had a '59 Les Paul at the time, oh, nice. but it was uh, the gigs were always four to five hours long. Yeah, and heavy. you can't you can't <laughs> carry a Les Paul for that. I, break, I was, break your back. <laughs> I was I was in shape, yeah. you know, not like now, but I still had pains shooting across here. I know? believe it. Yeah. So I switched to an SG, and um, didn't sound as good. It was a heck of a lot lighter. But I had a, an interesting rig. I had a little uh, Gibson, like a starter amp. Okay. On and I turned it up to ten. Right. Instead and I of had break a, up that a way. A studio microphone I bought for ten bucks. I'd 
put it on a towel and, and put this behind my big amp, and the microphone is going to the big amp. Because you have to understand, there were no overdrive pedals. Yeah. There were no pedals. Yeah, yeah. No effects pedals. So if I wanted, oh, my, my amp wouldn't break up. I don't care how loud you got. I had right, an amp yeah, peg. Sure. Amp pegs don't break up. Yeah, no, so, um, I've got I've got a 60s amp peg, and it is clear as a bell, unbelievably loud. That's what, yeah. Yeah, I had yeah, a 70-watt yeah. with a 15, Yeah, and I couldn't I've get got, it to I've break got, up. I would deafen everybody in the whole venue. What's it so called? So I got that little bitty amp. Well, they all have rocket, right? Reverb rocket yeah, or something yeah. like that. So... Um, it was a great amp. See, the thing is, if you had a Fender amp in those days, they're always breaking down. Yeah. But if you had an impact, bulletproof. Well, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. I've got one that I found on the side of the road, and it works just fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it survives all this time. They're built to last forever, and they do. Yeah. So um, we had a lot of fun. And one of the top DJs in town, Jim Stewart, bought a big, big club on Canal Street, and he named it Jamie's. And he said, look, I have two stages. I have a big stage, then I have a small stage behind the bar in the front. And he said, your band would be perfect for that. So we were there for about a year. And the pay was good. And um, it was a beautiful club. And, and so we we had our home base. Yeah. And uh, I got to play guitar. And um, I was like the... Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix of New Orleans, you know? Yeah, Because okay. <laughs> no one else was doing that. Yeah, yeah. New Orleans was never a guitar player's town. It was always piano and drums. Yeah, sure. Piano player and drums and a few horn players. That was what New Orleans was known for. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a lot of it was because of the funk, because we all invented it there. Yeah. So, um... Cool. I started dating uh, the girl that is now my wife of 52 years. Oh, wow. And, um... She said, you know, well, we're talking about getting married. And she said, well, what kind of marriage would that be? You're never home. Yeah, yeah. So little did she I've know. I've had that conversation. I hope she doesn't see this. <laughs> little did she know I was up to here with playing music. Yeah. I'd, I'd overdone it. You know, okay. Six nights a week for, for 10 years? That's too yeah. much. Yeah. Too much. So I just had enough. I was ready to quit. So I secured myself through a family member, a good job with Ford Motor Company. And uh, we got married in 1970, and I, I packed it up. Right. I okay. quit. So then... Um, I actually sold Clapton my 59 Les Paul. Are you serious? That's wild. That's amazing. Well, Mac, <laughs> Mac was playing organ with him. Yeah. And his 59 was stolen. Okay. So Mac called my mom and said, where's Jay? And uh, she said, he's in Detroit working for Ford. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. So he called me and he said, I'm in Detroit. I said, what are you doing in Detroit? He said, we're playing at Cobo Hall uh, with uh, with Eric Clapton. He said, come on down to the Pontchartrain Hotel. But he said, "Bring." So he said, you still have those uh, Les Pauls? I said, I've got like 30 of them. <laughs> he said, well, Clapton wants to buy one, so bring two or three of them down here. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know what you could get for them back then, which is what I sold for five hundred bucks. Now they're worth a half a million dollars. Yeah. So uh, I never paid over a hundred for any of them, though. Yeah. People would buy them because they're beautiful, and their neck would hurt. And it's solid for anything. Just Have you still rid. still got one lying around? I sold my three. I had two fifty nines and a fifty eight. Okay. Seven years ago, I sold them. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
got a lot of money for them. Yeah. I, mean, I would yes. get more today, but I got a lot of money for them. But they were mint. They were the best of the lot. Yeah. You know? So we go down to Cobo Hall. Linda's carrying uh, <coughs> one. I'm carrying two. And um, we go up to the suite. Mac meets us at the door. And there's Eric sitting there with no shirt on, swacked out of his gourd. <laughs> but he put a guitar in his hand, you know. So he's going through all three guitars. And he said, I'll take this one. So some guy goes off in the bedroom somewhere, comes back and gives me five crisp $100 bills. And uh, by the time he got back, Mac said, oh, I want this one too. So he had to go back and get 500 more. All right. And uh, that was that, you know. And then yeah. and so Mac said, well, come on. We have backstage passes for you and everything. I said, oh, no, man, we got to work tomorrow. We're going home. Oh, there you go. So that was that, you know. <laughs> yeah. But Mac did a tour, a brief tour with Eric Clapton on – B3. He was playing B3. Ah, cool. Nice. Yeah. That was 1970. Right. Yeah. But, so, um, <coughs> I did work for Ford um, for all this time, and then um, how did you come to uh, open a guitar shop in uh, Jupiter, Florida? How did that all come about? Well, we had never seen snow. We're, my wife and I are both from New Orleans, and it was, a, it was like this winter right here. It was the coldest winter in 50 years. Yeah. Snow covered our second-story apartment. Oh, wow. And we said, we got to get out of here. This is insane. <laughs> Couldn't drive your car. He said, I've seen enough snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So um, there were two openings, one in Houston and one in Miami. Right. And so I t- we took the one in Miami. Oh, there you go. And you know, lived there for a while. And I, I just got tired of the of that the boredom of that job. Sure, sure. It just got too Someone so, creative like yourself must have, yeah, got a little bit dry after a while. So I got in the boat business. Yeah, right. I love boats. And raced in the ocean for eight years. Oh, wow. Worked for a high-performance boat company, Velocity Marine. Oh, cool. Won two national championships, one yeah. world championship. Um, and uh, got beat up quite a lot. Right. And, uh, but the whole time, I'm buying and selling guitars. Oh, really? And I I really wanted to go out and play. Yeah, yeah. But but now I had three kids. Yeah. And it's just too irresponsible to not be home, you know? Sure. And help my wife with the kids and everything. So, um, you know, I just fought off that urge. Yeah. And then uh, I was buying and selling so many guitars. You see, there was no internet at the time, but something happened. Right. a friend of mine said, I'm going to a guitar show. And I said, what the hell is that? He said, well, it's like a gun show or an antique show, but it's all guitars. He said, do you have any guitars you want to sell? I said, yeah, like 30 or 40. So <laughs> he said, well, get 10 of them, and I'll get 10, and we'll go get a little small booth. Yeah. And we did it, and I sold my 10 guitars. I must have my prices stupid low. Right, yeah. Sold them in like 10 minutes, you know. And so now i got a handful of cash, so I'm going around the show buying more guitars, putting them up in the booth and selling them. So I said, you know, yeah. you know, a bell rings in my head. And uh, I said, this is an actual business. This could work. Yeah. And I've been doing it ever since. But what happens, the Internet came in. Yeah. And it ruined the, uh, the guitar shows. There are right. still guitar shows. I've been to a guitar show, but it was a long time ago. It was in the 90s. But they're not as productive anymore. I yeah, mean, they're yeah. still fun to go to. Yeah. But, you know, like I'd go to the Dallas show and come home with 150000 cash. Oh, wow. Now, if, you know, the last show, I think I came home with about like 8000 cash. Yeah, know, I mean, that's that's really, a difference. The right internet there. killed it. 
Yeah. See, people would say, you know, I have this old Martin, and I really want an old Telecaster. Yeah. So I'll wait to the Dallas show or the Philly show or Orlando show, and I'll take it there, and I'll walk it around the show and get the best price I can, and then I'll go find that Telecaster I want. Yeah. Well, now they do that on the Internet. Exactly. And so the shows, they just go and look. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not the same. So, so I said, you know, I'm kind of traveling anyway. I'm going to open a shop, but I'm not going to open a traditional shop. I'm yeah. going to open a fun shop where um, people can come and hang out, jam, play. You know, it's not going to be so formal. Sure. And uh, and it is fun up there. I, I enjoyed coming in. Um, I was in about two weeks ago, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, cool I mean, uh, most of my friends are customers, and it's it's just been very rewarding. Yeah. And, um, you know, and we ship guitars all over the world. Well, that's one thing I was going to say is that I think a lot of music shops, probably all music shops, and definitely your music shop has a very big online life. You know, it's, to, it's just in terms of buying and selling. That, that's like a total side of the business, maybe the most important side of the business. You know what I mean? Well, there's a guy in Ohio. He called me one day and he said, I'm interested in that guitar you just posted. He said, you know, I bought over 35 guitars from you. And we've never even met. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I have other customers like that. I, I believe a customer it. in Italy bought like 20 guitars for me. I've never seen the guy. I don't even yeah. know if he exists, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's the, I mean, that's just the nature of the world today, you know. It's where all the business is done. I mean, I, and I buy my musical instruments almost exclusively online. I try and get small stuff and uh, from – I try and get like – stuff that I can get from music shops from music shops mm -hmm. but then if it's like something that's really expensive and I, I just the only way I can afford it I mean what are you going to do you know mm -hmm. I just get it how I can get it and, and um well there's an upside to that and you just described there's a downside the downside is you're buying a pig in a poke you don't know what you're getting yeah uh, that's true I have to say we do quite well in our service department yeah sorting out those guitars that people buy online and have big hopes for yeah Oh, uh, we just, you know, a lot of people, and I've, I've had customers come in and try to sell me their guitar because we buy guitars all the time. Yeah. I've had many times, they come in and they try to sell me the guitar and it has a fatal flaw. The truss rod's broken. Right, yeah. Uh, Jeez, yeah. It's got a twisted neck and whatever. And you tell them, yeah, I can't buy it. And they say, well, I'll just go sell it on eBay or right, eBay right, right. Com. And I think, well, yeah, well, that's real ethical. Yeah, really. You know, so we had a guy in just yesterday, and what kind of guitar was it? Oh, um, a Loudon of all things. Right. Busted truss rod. And yeah. so he wanted me to plaque the guitar on our plaque machine. I couldn't get the neck straight. Yeah. The truss rod was broken. So the guy, he just bought it online. Yeah. He sa I said, maybe you can return it. So he's going to try and return it, but... Yeah, it sucks. That guitar, I said, it can be repaired. Hmm, costs a hell of a lot of money. you got to dismantle the whole neck, you know, and fingerboard yeah. and everything. It could be yeah. damaged, you know. Mm-hmm. At that point, at that point you just get another neck. I mean, you know, what kind of guitar was it? In the case a Loudon from oh, Ireland. Right, right, gotcha, yeah. yeah. You know, $6,000 guitar. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yes. Which, yeah, go on, carry on. So. Oh, very interesting thing about Loudon. <clears throat> yeah. You know Graham Zebedee, who the Brit that used to work for him. I do. Okay. Well, Graham tells me that um, 
Loudons have become so expensive, and people in Europe love Loudon guitars. Yeah. But Loudon has poked them in the eye with these $12,000 prices. Sure. You know? I mean, a simple one is 6000 Yeah. People in the U.K. cannot afford that. No. <laughs> a lot of people in America cannot afford that. So Graham says, read these forums about Loudon guitars. And I'm reading... And these guys are buying Loudon copies from a guy in China, oh, really? a luthier in China, for like a thousand dollars to fifteen hundred, with exotic woods. Like there's a Loudon with the Australian blackwood right. and uh, curly redwood top, yeah. thirteen thousand five hundred. I contacted this guy in China, and I sent him a photo of it. I said, can you make this? He sent me a photo back of two of them he just made. Ah. He said, uh, $2,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I ordered six of them. But I told him, don't use the Loudon headstock. Yeah. Don't use the Loudon bridge. He has other bridges and his own headstock. And uh, I suggest, see, in, in China, unfortunately, it's not illegal to knock off stuff. Right. Um, and he even has a video where he takes a McPherson guitar, also very expensive, dismantles the whole thing right in the video, does all the measuring and everything, and then plugs it into the CNC machine and makes a McPherson guitar. Right. I said, man, you got to take that video down. Americans don't cotton to that kind of thing, you know? That's yeah, just, yeah. That's just unethical as hell. But not in China. Yeah, yeah. It's just normal there, business. There's a right. lot. There's a lot. I know... I know just buying bases over the years, like there's there's a lot of bases where I'm looking for a specific base and I'll come across one and go, Wow, that's that's really cheap for that base and then I and then I start digging a little bit and I realize it's it's a copy. It's it's, it's a, a knockoff. Yeah. It's unbelievable the amount of knockoffs that well, are. Well what out there. this guy's doing mm-hmm. is he's using very fine exotic woods. You know, everything from Brazilian rosewood to mahogany, everything in between. And he's making so uh, I'm trying to uh, – I ordered some sample guitars from him. They should be in next week or the week after to try and see if they're as good. The guys in Europe that love Loudon guitars are raving about them. Yeah. Raving about them because they can afford them and they're every bit as good. There's videos posted of these guitars where a guy's playing his Loudon that he loves and then he picks up this guitar and plays it and says, can you hear a difference? I can't hear a difference. Yeah. And I put my headphones on. I can't hear it. So I'm all excited to try them. And I then am excited. The guy says he'll do any redesign that I want. Yeah. You so said they're coming in next week? Yeah. I'm going to come take a look. Well, the week after or <laughs> okay. whatever. They're coming from China on a right. slow boat, unfortunately. But right. what what I want him to do is to change them so they're not a knockoff. Right. Yeah. And he says he'll do that. He says he doesn't care. Like yeah. he makes a, a Gibson SJ200. Right. The model name on the label, SJ200. Right. Said, oh, man, you can't do that. Yeah. Why doesn't he just have his own brand? I mean, he could charge you huge prices. Yeah, yeah exactly. It makes no Be sense. Be proud of what you make. Put your name on it. Exactly. Well, he doesn't put Gibson on it. He does put his name on it. Okay. He puts Gibson on it. But he puts, <laughs> no, he puts SJ200. So I ordered one just to try it. Yeah. And he said, what name you went on it? And I said, uh, Emmy Lou Jumbo, because Emmy Lou Harris, who I love, always played a J200. Right. So I'm going to have the only Emmy Lou J200 in the world. Oh, that's so cool. 
I love that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, listen, um, I think it's time we listen to some of your uh, previous recordings. So I'm, I'm going to make a little mashup of them and we're, we're going to listen through to a few, a few of your tunes. And, um, and then when we come back, we will talk about what's coming up. And, uh, and thanks so much for this kind of history of, of the South and, and rock and roll and R&B and the uh, early beginnings of funk. It's really fascinating, Jay. Yeah, I really yeah. appreciate you coming in. But um, we're going to get back at it. I just want to give um, our listeners a little chance to hear what we've been talking about. Good. Talk. Leave me alone. The oxytocin. 
music is brought to you by Handlebars Bar and Grill. It's a biker bar in Tequesta, and if you're driving up US 1, you come across it on the right-hand side. It's a, a little bar there. It's bright yellow. You can't miss it with the handlebars on, on the sign, and it has a 
long and storied history. It's been there. It used to be called Judy's, um, and it was run by this guy Victor, who sadly passed this year, R.I.P. Victor. And uh, then my father-in-law took it over, and he's doing a great job up there. There is a bike night every second Thursday of the month, and there is a jam every fourth Sunday of the month. If you're interested in that kind of thing, it's just an all-inclusive, any, any kind of music, any style, any ability type of a jam. And there's great beers on tap, and they're wonderful food. Bernsey, the chef, does, does a fantastic job. Um, if you're interested in classic cars or classic bikes, there's always that kind of stuff hanging around there. It attracts that sort of a crowd because it's called Handlebars Bar and Grill, so it makes sense. And, um, yeah, you should come swing by. It's uh, it's definitely a local spot and has a lot of character. And there's people who have been going there for decades and decades. It's one of those places that's um, a part of the furniture in Tequesta. And you should definitely come check it out. I um, booked the music for the place and love doing it and um i was a part of helping set the place up and um i'm a huge fan and you should anyone who is interested in biker bars or even if you've just never been to one and you're curious about what a biker bar is about you should go and check out handlebars bar and grill we are also sponsored by oasis root now oasis root carver bar is in sea grape square on indian town road and it is a kava bar. If you don't know anything about kava, it's a Polynesian root that you grind up and you mix with water. And it has been in Polynesia for potentially thousands of years. It's, a, it's an old thing that um, they used for kind of ceremonial and also um, sort of ledger purposes. It, it's meant to be something where, you know, that brings people together. Um, you all take a, a shell of kava and chink them together and say bula and have it together like that. It's meant to be something to bring people together. It uh, has a kind of an effect, which is, I guess, a kind of a slightly warming effect. Uh, it just kind of makes you feel a, a, a nice. It's not particularly intoxicating. It's not like drinking alcohol. So the atmosphere in a kava bar is sort of like um, a cross between a regular bar and uh, a coffee house pretty chill in there um you get all sorts of different types of carver bars some of them are more like a club you know this sort of like black light and edm playing and some of them are more like a cafe this is one of the cafe type of ones it's it's super chill in there if you're looking for somewhere to i don't know maybe go and do some work on your laptop or go and have a chat with friends it's perfect for that kind of thing there's a foosball table in there if that's your jam or baby foot as they call it in france and uh yeah, Jim, the owner, is a really cool guy, and he has very kindly sponsored our podcast. So thank you very, very much for that, Jim. They also do a poker night in there. All sorts of things going on at Oasis Root Carver Bar. 561 Music is sponsored by Live Music Community. It's where we film the podcast that you're listening to right now, and it's also where I work. Gavin, Hector's son, was a student here for a long time, and in many ways he's the musician he is today because of the teachers at Live Music Community. We taught him not only about his instrument, but also about being in a band. And his band, Unemployed Youth, accomplished a lot of goals, mostly band etiquette, how to work together, and all of the nitty-gritty that goes into being in a band on a day-to-day -day basis. The student signs up for lessons, learns their instrument, joins a real band, and decides the direction it goes in. And we can take people from very young age, you know, six or seven years old, all the way up to 80. You know, there's no age limit here. Um, we've run an adult program for people who want to be in a band as adults. But 
really the main focus is on the on the kids and getting them playing together and in bands. Um, we are also a studio, a live stream venue, and can, we can record audio or video. The Killbillies live album, Warts and All, was recorded here. It was recorded during a live stream that we did during COVID. Justin had a great idea to record live streams during COVID. A ton of bands came in and it was a real success. Um, but outside of that, we can record albums. We can help you with your EPK. And we have full audiovisual capabilities here. LMC is in Palm Beach Gardens on the northwest corner of Military Trail and North Lake Boulevard. It's north of the gas station right before you get to North Lake on Military Trail. And if you go to livemusiccommunity.com, you have all the information you'll need right there. Thanks. So we've just been listening to an ad about Live Music Community. Um, Jay, do you have any advice for upcoming musicians by any chance? Well, I think I have the same advice that you would give most people. Listen. Like, you know, I'm throwing out a lot of names of really old artists. But listen to them. Yeah. And don't just... Say, oh, this is my favorite singer. That's who I'm going to listen to, my favorite band. Listen to other bands. Listen to all genres and ask questions. You meet a musician. You know him. There's a guy who lives down the street from you. Don't avoid him. Knock on their door and say, can I pick your brain a little bit? Yeah. You know, be proactive and get to know your instrument. Take lessons from yeah. a good teacher and practice, practice, practice. Well, that's it, uh, a friend of mine played guitar with Benny Goodman, and Benny was in his oh. uh, 70s, and he still practiced six hours a day. This now, that man was a virtuoso. This is something I was going to ask you. Do you still practice your instruments? Rarely, although, because I bought a new snare drum. I'm, see, I haven't played drums in like 50 years. Right. But I have a passion to play them again. And I have a new music. We built a an addition of our home, and I have a 700-square-foot music room. Man, oh, it's huge. Oh, wow. So I have my drums, PA, guitars, and all this stuff in there. And so I'm, I'm starting to practice a little bit now yeah, just yeah. to see if I can get the uh, coordination back. Yeah, a bit know? of the feel back and the coordination, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it feels very awkward to me. Yeah. yeah. You know, some of the things that were so natural to me before – the muscle memory is gone. But I've practiced guitar for years. I don't yeah. practice anymore, no. Right. So um, I put together a uh, a little bit of a, a mashup there of uh, Storm Warning and um, Pass the Hatchet and Talk That Talk. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, is there anything that we missed that you'd want to say about them? One of the things that we were talking about in the break there was um, the way that you recorded those tunes. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, Cosmo's recording studio um, in New Orleans was old by the time we got around to recording there. You know, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Ray Charles, everybody recorded there. Um, by the time we got around to it, it was old, but it was a four-track. So when we did a tune with, with a singer, uh, like we did a song with uh, a guy named Eddie Powers, who we had just met. And it went to number one regionally all throughout the South. And we wow. had a tour. It was called Gypsy Woman with Eddie Powers. Yeah, that's right. And uh, by the time that song came out, it was already out of date because the British, that was 64 and the British invasion was coming. And rock and roll was evolving very quickly to guitar bands yeah. and not our kind of uh, New Orleans R&B. So, uh, but we recorded four track and like the way they mixed the sound is Cosmo would come on 
or whoever was running the the desk would say, uh, trumpet player, take two steps back and quarter turn to the left. That's how they mixed. <laughs> yeah. And they, like Cosmo would come out and take the big microphone. He had one mic over my drums. I, oh, I wow. see these drummers with 30 mics, and I go, yeah, yeah. what the <laughs> hell? Man? I never had a mic on a drum, except when we were recording one big giant microphone, rubber band mounted right in front of me, and he would move it away from my right cymbal, or he'd move it away from my snare, and that's how they mix sound. Yeah. Well, those are some roomy sounding drums that are on those recordings. Yeah, yeah but remember Dave Bartholomew, 4, 000, over 4,000 hits. Dave was just, uh, he just passed away, but he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, and he should have uh. been. Nobody's equal that record, over 4,000 hits. One yeah, guy. It's incredible. But he was Kaz's guy. You know, he was, um, like for instance, there was, um, I don't know why I remember this name, Dorothy Lobostri was a 15-year-old little black girl, and she and her friend would hang around outside the studio to try and see, you know, meet the great musicians, maybe sure. get autographs. <clears throat> and one night, little Richard was recording, and she had, um, she and her friend went to the ice cream, the store in the corner, and got some ice cream, and they had a new flavor called Tutti Frutti. <laughs> so... She and her friend, little Dorothy, are oh, coming back to the studio singing Tootie Fruity All Rudy. They just <laughs> they just rhymed that. Yeah. Little Richard heard it. <laughs> All of a Dave Bartholomew heard it and said, Come inside, little girl. One of the biggest rock and roll hits ever. That's and amazing. Dorothy Lobostri wrote that. Oh wow. While standing outside That's Cosmo's amazing. studio. There's so many great stories like yeah. that. She must be sick. I wonder if she saw any money from it. <laughs> I'm sure she did. Little Richard was okay. huge, man. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. huge. Absolutely. His specialty years before he went wacko on everybody. I have a bird at home called Lucille, which is a, a it turns out was a male bird, and I really missed a trick because Little Richard would have been a great name for a, for oh, a bird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Little Richard. I, you know, oh, this early music. stuff on specialty? Yeah. That's Dave Bartholomew's band. With uh, Earl Palmer on drums and Leah, yeah. those great saxophone solos and that stuff, amazing. Yeah, and that was Lee Allen, and and, um, and Red uh, Tyler. Right, it's nice. amazing how um, how much you remember in terms of the names of these people. It's, and it's I think it's really important, you know, to give credit. And it's something that uh, I I find difficult to you know remember these great litanies of names. But so grateful to have you in here, and you know, you're just sort of laying it out for everyone so they can go. Well, and these check people it. are dying off. I mean, Mac just died. Earl Stanley's not doing real good right now, and uh, like Glenn May and old one of our my old bandmates just passed away last week. I mean, yeah. you know, when you get this old, all your friends are dying. You know. Yeah, I hear that. Got to keep that history alive, though. Yeah. Oh absolutely. man, I hope people will go and you know the, the good thing about YouTube is all this stuff's on there. Yeah. So people can go and listen to Roy Brown and Smiley Lewis. Smiley Lewis had a song called "Someday." Right. Everyone should listen to that song ten times. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, I know that I'm going to go back. I mean, I've already been listening to some of the stuff that you um, sent us to listen to, but I know that I'm definitely going to go back and listen to a ton of this stuff because oh, there's, sure. there's definitely some holes in there that I don't know. So it, it, even if it just improves my record collection, <laughs> but I know a bunch of other people will too. Well, let me tell you about Pass the Hatchet because yeah. this is crazy. We're in the studio recording, I don't know what, and Earl said, look, I have a cousin. He's a house painter. And I'm giving him guitar lessons. 
He's not very good. But he wants to pay you guys to record this little instrumental he came up with. Forty bucks a man. Take it 15 minutes. Stick around. So, okay, 40 bucks. Happy to have it. Yeah. So the guy comes in, gives us all 40 bucks, and he plays this thing, and it's so awkward on the guitar. So Earl says, look, I'll play it along with you because Earl taught him how to play it, and he played along with him. Yeah. And we recorded it as an instrumental, and then we forgot about it because it was awful. Right, right, right. Got our 40 bucks going out of your head. Earl goes back to his office, and Eddie Bowe walks in. Eddie Bowe was a popular singer in the New Orleans area who had had some regional hits. And Earl was playing the darn thing, and he said, you know, it'd be great if I had some voiceovers on this, you know. And Eddie started just clowning around. Yeah. And and he was brilliant. And so Earl says, let's go to the studio. Went back to Cosmos. Eddie uh, Eddie Bo did some voiceovers on it. That song went to number one like that. Wow. In New Orleans and all around the region. It's been used in six movie soundtracks. Wow. Holy crap. And Earl made over a million dollars on it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was happy for him. I got my 40 bucks. Yeah, But, yeah. Um, you know, that's what's this. When you're a side man, be happy with who you are. Yeah. You know? You're not the guy up front. Now, what about the house painter? Did he did he get... Uh... Well, we had to start a band to support the record because the DJs were calling Earl and saying, hey, we, we want you guys to open the show for us <laughs> because we had, a, we had a hit record, man. Yeah. And so uh, we had this... Uh, and the name... The house painter's name was Roger. So they came up with the name Roger and the Gypsies because we had a hit record called Gypsy Woman. Yeah. So um, we had to start a band called Roger and the Gypsies and you can see photos of me and Roger and the Gypsies on my <coughs> Facebook page if you scroll down far enough. And uh, for about three or four months, we're getting paid pretty good money to support that tune. And then we formed, or Earl formed a band with some other musicians. You guys carry on as Roger and the Gypsies. We're done with it, you know. And we moved on, went back to our regular scheduled program. But um, a guy called me from Germany a few years ago and said that, that tune and Roger and the Gypsies have a cult following. And he interviewed me for his radio show, and we exchanged some photographs and stuff. And he said they have T-shirts and everything for uh, Pass the Hatchet. You oh, know, cool. That's awesome. And one day I'm in, my, I'm in my shop, and I'm listening to one of my favorite fun bands, which is Southern Culture on the Skids. I love those guys. Right. They throw out fried chicken at their gigs sometimes. <laughs> they're cool. really great band and funny. And I'm listening to him on internet radio, and all of a sudden I hear past the hatchet, and I said, that doesn't sound like my drum, because the drums do the intro. Yeah. And uh, they covered it. Oh. And it was actually good. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Much better than our version. <laughs> but Southern Culture on the Skids did pass the hatchet. Oh, that's they covered cool. it. That's Because they cover quirky, sure, like Wolverton Mountain, you know, quirky songs. Yeah, fifties and sixties. It's nice to be a part of that whole tapestry, you know, and then and, and for something like that to be able to happen to you, and you're just listening, and you're like, "Whoa, they come!" You know, it's nice. It's lovely. Yeah, I call Earl, and the big doofus says, "I'm calling my lawyer." I said, "Oh, shut up, man!" <laughs> what do they say? Uh, uh, Im- imitation is the best form of flattery, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> leave him alone. He said, "No, they got to pay me." I said, "You already got paid, man." And so did I. Forget about it. Yeah, totally. They're a fun band, you know. They're not going to get rich off of. 
pass the hatch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to call his lawyer. So, um, what have you have you got anything coming up? What's what's happening um, over at Wolf Guitars in the in the next couple of months? You got anything exciting that people should know about? Well, we have. Um, there's, there's always something new in the guitar shop. You know, new guitars coming and going. Yeah. And uh, so, like, every day is Christmas around there. You know, the UPS truck pulls up. Yeah. And you're opening boxes, and it's just so exciting. But um, we're, we're, we're organizing a thing. I don't have the date yet with Christopher Maloney with Practice Warriors. He's yeah. Gonna he's going to come in the shop. It's going to be a free event. And he's going to, you know, give a talk and explain what he's all about. And I know you, you've already interviewed Christopher. Yeah, and he's yeah. a tour de force. The guy's a... <clears throat> The, the guy's just a you know machine. He 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 gave such great advice on there. I thought yeah. it was really interesting. He's really onto something with practice warriors. I, I think. agree. So um, and we and I've uh, been talking with Robin Ford. We've tried to get together. To, he's done two events in our shop, and he wants to do another one, and we do too. And we just haven't his. You know, now that COVID's over, these guys are are mostly over. Yeah. These guys are touring a lot. Yeah, and I'm so happy for them. But Robin says. Next time I'm in Florida, I'll let you know, and we'll do something again. Well, you know, he's been here twice before in our shop. And then Matt Schofield, uh, same thing. We're just yeah. waiting until he's going to be here long enough to uh, to do something. But he lives here, so but he's touring a lot. Yeah. What have we got coming up? So we've got Meg O'Malley's on New Year's Eve. On New Year's Eve. That's yeah. going to be crazy. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. So if anyone yeah. is in the Melbourne area, <laughs> yeah. then come and see uh, Kilberley's playing Meg O'Malley's. Um, you know, usual times at 8.30 till... Uh, I, I, I suspect we might be going on a little longer than we usually do because it's yeah. New Year's Eve. But yeah. um, I can't wait. It's a, it's one of those places that we play that it just gets us and we get it. You know, oh, it works. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun place. It's a really fun place, and it's on on any on any normal night. It's a fun place, and it's packed. So I can't even fathom what it's going to be like on New Year's Eve. It's going to be ridiculous. Be and something which is quite nice about being a musician is those slightly awkward holidays where where you don't know what to do with yourself, and there's a lot of expectation. Um, you know, we get to play. Yeah. You know, which yeah. I love. I love that. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just a nice way of experiencing the night. <clears throat> yeah, no, it'll be fun. It'll be a good time. Yeah, absolutely, and. Uh, Hector will be feeling a bit better. Uh, hopefully, I'll be feeling better by then. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I'll be there, even if I have to prop myself up against the side of the wall there or something. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'll have I'll have the bass hold me up instead of me hold the bass up instead. <laughs> so we'll see. Is there anything you feel like we missed? Is there anything that um, the, the uh, more? I mean, I'm sure we missed a ton of stuff. Is there anything you want to throw out there? There's. I just encourage people to listen to these historical figures. Yeah. That predate um, FM radio, predate uh, Top 40 radio. Yeah. Um, you know, the stuff we used to hear coming back from gigs, we'd listen to a clear channel, Wolfman Jack. Right. Yeah. Coming back from gigs, and he would play a lot of that music. He would mix it up. He'd do Top 40 stuff, too. But mostly he did obscure music that was, you know, really good. Yeah, great. I think that's great advice. And, you know, anyone who's out there and listening and has made it this far, I'm sure you probably will do that. Um, so uh, thank you so much for coming on here, Jay. We really, yeah, really appreciate it. And yeah. it's nice to do something a little different. Um, just I think it's something for the viewers and listeners who, who you know, um, our, our format is 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 
relatively the same every week and it's nice every now and again to do something slightly different and a history lesson a music history lesson is something we could all use especially on this incredibly productive time there in uh, new orleans so thank you yeah. very much yeah so our last right, well, uh, thank for having me yeah our last episode of the year so it was nice to to close it out with something a little bit different and uh, and it was fun it was yeah. good yeah good well, stuff. this music has a rich history yeah. yeah reach back explore it it's wonderful yeah. no doubt about it all right, guys. Uh, you know the drill. www.561music.com has all the links to all of our stuff, or at 561 Music Podcast is all of our socials. Um, like, subscribe, send money. Absolutely. That's the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please do. We, we, we all, and, you know, uh, this, does, this isn't free to make. So yep. uh, anything that, um, that you can uh, donate to us is, is hugely appreciated. And, and Ben and I will be uh, discussing and deliberating here over the next week or two. And hopefully uh, not, too, uh, not too distant into the new year here, we're going to make the announcement of uh, the lineup for 561 Music Festival in April. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, so looking forward to that. Yeah, we can chat about it on the way up to the gig there. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, nice one. All right, cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay.